Well, thank you so much. Um, it's so great to be here with everyone. Um, I want to start uh, sharing today by, by taking us on a journey in terms of how our movement started. And I think you'll see its relevance to my experience, to your experience, and I, it'll also put the spotlight on what I want to emphasize today in sharing with you. Um, it's amazing when you look back at how certain events create certain things in life, right? And the fact that Roland Hazard came from a wealthy family and, and could afford to be sent over to, to Switzerland, to Zurich, and treat with Dr. Carl Jung, ended up having an incredible, started an incredible movement that neither one of them could have known, you know, foresaw, right? Um, forecasted. So Jung, Jung is treating this young man, Roland Hazard. And uh, I, I don't know how long he was in therapy, but he was in therapy for quite some time with him. And, you know, at that point in time, Jung was probably the second best known psychiatrist, therapist, psychoanalyst in the world. You know, it was Freud and Jung at that point in time. And um, at the end, I think Hazard, it is somebody shared with me the other day, Hazard was nearing the end of his treatment and was heading, going to head back to the States. And went ahead to get on board the ship and got drunk before he left <laughs> and came back to Young and said, well, obviously something's not, didn't work here. And, and Young kind of looked at him. And one of the things I appreciated about Young, he says, you know, I don't really think I can help you. He says, I tried my best. I tried to help you in every way I can, but you know, folks like you, you know, need something very special to happen in their life. And he described to, to Hazard what a vital spiritual experience was. And he said in his belief that it's only people, alcoholics, that he, that he saw that had these vital spiritual experiences that were able to maintain any kind of a recovery from their alcoholism. And he went on to describe this vital spiritual experience as a as a real shift in one's personality. He said that it, there's a, a reorganization that takes place inside of one. And these beliefs and ideas, what I would call today personal constructs that one was holding on to, um, are released and a whole set of new ideas supplants them. And now becomes the, the operating, the, the modus operandi, if you will, for that individual. So Hazard comes back to the United States and he finds this Oxford group where he had a spiritual experience, right? And this Oxford group was the, this big movement in the United States in the 30s at that time, moral rearmament, it was called at one point. And based on just certain solid spiritual principles, like be honest, make amends for things you've done wrong, and help others, you know, very, very basic tenets. And um, Ebby Thatcher was going to these groups, who was, a, uh, I think, a childhood friend of Bill Wilson, somebody that served in World War I with Bill Wilson. And, and Ebby, you know, this program started to make sense to him. And, you know, one of the things he was encouraged to do in the Oxford group is go share it with others. So he shows up at Bill's apartment someday, and we all know about that part of it and how Bill was kind of impressed that there seemed to be this aura around Ebby that he had found this new way of life. And Bill was attracted to the energy he had. But Bill could not buy this idea that he, we had to believe in a certain, or that he even had to believe in a certain God that was being promoted by the Oxford group. But the principles he knew were powerful. And, and he started to apply some of those to his life. And then we know the story, you know, he goes for this business deal, you know, in um, Akron, Ohio, it goes south. And instead of taking a drink, he picks up the phone and reaches out to some clergy and says, you guys know of any anybody that's got alcoholism that needs help. And then he ended up being introduced, you know, to Dr. Bob. Well, 
Later on, I think in 1960s, they were sitting around the general service office and, and they said, did anybody ever share with Dr. Carl Jung that he had such an impact on the develop, you know, the, the, the genesis, if you will, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so some, you know, some correspondence was set over there and then Jung responded to that. And I just want to read you a little section of, of that. He was talking about his work with Ebby and he, uh, I mean, with Roland Hazard. And he said, at the time, I, I couldn't articulate it like this, is that, that the, the world I was operating really didn't permit me. I, I would be seen as a little too far out there, right? But he said that he believed that his craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. I'll say that again, that his craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. He goes expressed in medieval languages, the union with God. But I want to focus on it from more of a humanistic point of view, this thirst of our being for wholeness. You see, that to me is the force that I've been able to connect to now that I've been in this program. You know, different um, psychologists and psychiatrists have called it self-actualization. In uh, fact, Kurt Goldstein um, was a neurologist, uh, a neuropsychologist, and he was treating World War I um, brain-injured soldiers in Germany. And he made an observation, and it really, really moved him is that what he saw that the brain injured soldier do is that they were able to actualize whatever possibilities remained available to them after the injury and optimize their living and the way that they were functioning. So there was this adaptation to what was going on that move the individual to making the best out of whatever was happening for them in terms of being able to function optimally. Well, this was an amazing observation on his part. He says, there is a force here. I can't explain this in terms of what drives and motivates these men, but it is something that is coming from the inside of them and moving them to be whatever they can be given their limitations, given the limitations that are caused by these brain insults and injuries. Well, other psychologists came along and says, my God, this is a very different view of human nature than the one that Freud left us with, right? Freud left us with this, this battle that we had between good and evil, and evil really was the one that was winning out most of the time, and that we were going to go ahead and make these these emotional unconscious compromises that were going to be very, very hard to turn around without showing up five days a week on the analyst couch and getting some very, very deep analytic work. And the humanist came along and says, you know, I, I think Jung or Freud, while he may have had a lot of things right, like the unconscious is a very powerful concept and we can embrace that. But when we start to think that our behavior is determined so early on and that we don't have a chance to change that we think he's wrong about that. We have at least a reasonable doubt that he might not be right. And I'm so thankful that they did. So the shift in the idea at that point became, it wasn't what was wrong with us that was the problem. It's what's right about us that we're not paying attention to, that we don't know how to embrace fully. And so like, you know, Roland Hazard, his search for wholeness led him to pick up a bottle so that he could be as whole as he could given his, that what was available to him, the resources that were available to him. Now, when I look back at my life, I can see that I was always trying to adapt to what was going on with the best that was available. And it really wasn't much. 
Um, I'm certain that that's probably true for each and every one of us that are in this room today. Uh, I grew up in uh, the northwest side of Chicago. Um, pretty much, I'd say it was a low middle class family. My dad was a mechanical engineer, um, worked very, very hard. Um, you know, my mom um, was a stay at home mom. It was a typical 50s family. I was born in 1952. But at 11 years old, um, I had an, a very traumatic event. My dad was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and he died a horrible death from cancer over about nine months. And this man who meant everything to me, I just saw the cancer just eat him alive. It just um, it tore the family apart. Um, you know, there, there was all of these, as there still are today, all these other hopes of trying to find some cure. I remember he went down to Mexico and was injecting some kind of uh, something from a avocado pit. I can't remember what it was called now in hopes that that would fight the myeloma. And my grandfather paid for that treatment. Um, but there were all of these things because he was trying to hold on to his life. My grandfather was encouraging him. I wanted him to keep living. But no matter what we wanted, the reality was he had cancer. And the cancer was going to win that battle. Um, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm now living in Pennsylvania. And part of the reason that I'm living out here is my wife was recruited by Johnson & Johnson to work on a new treatment for multiple myeloma. Isn't that interesting? That they're, now it's called the cure from within. And instead of treating patients with um, chemotherapy or radiation, they're actually going to change the genetics of the T cells in our body to go after that cancer cell. And it's a remarkable treatment. The, the number of the, they're near the end of the studies in the FDA, I think it's stage four or something like this. The results are remarkable. I mean, patients are being cured. You know, they go in for two months and they never get treated again. And the cancer is taken care of. It's pretty remarkable now. So there might be some great news on the horizon, you know, but there wasn't any of that available for my dad at the time. So um, my family was now witnessing the death of this man that was so important to all of us. Um, I remember that as things got worse, meaning that the pain was getting so great, my mom could no longer sleep with him every night. So I was the oldest. And so it would be my duty to lie next to him in bed at night and to, the alarm clock would go off at different times and I'd give him the pain medication. And, you know, that was a pretty heavy duty for an 11 year old you know, lying next to my dad, who I know is, you know, very, very ill. And I'm watching him and seeing if his chest is moving. Is he breathing or not? It was quite traumatic for me. And one night he just woke up screaming. I mean, I, those screams are still embedded in my soul and um, the cancer and the medications or whatever had happened had eaten through his stomach. And now he was bleeding internally. And the pain just broke through and um, he couldn't tolerate it. And he grabbed my right arm because I was laying on the left of him. And even he was skin and bones. He was about 90 pounds at this time, but he had enough strength where I felt like his grip was going to shatter my arm. It was so strong. Of course, I didn't know what to do. 911 was called. The ambulance came and they took him away. That was the last time I saw him. Um, that was... December 24th, 1963, and December 26th, the day after Christmas, he passed away alone in the hospital from cancer. And I was devastated. I mean, I was crushed when my mom came in and told the story. But, you know, I look back now at how I dealt with that is when I was told the news that he had passed away, I'm standing there looking out at the corner of Argyle and Laverne, and it was in the winter in the Chicago, the snow gets all black and mucky from the exhaust fumes and the cars driving around and kind of turns slushy. And it was almost like that, that's that cold, that slush just penetrated my soul. 
and I was frozen inside. I didn't cry. I didn't want to deal with any of the feelings I had. Now, I look back at that and I go, wow, what was going on? Well, my dad, through that whole period of time, suffered in silence himself. He didn't talk about his pain. He didn't talk about what it meant for him that at 39 years old, he's dying and he has these four children that he loves more than life itself. He couldn't find the words to talk about these things. That stuff was not talked about at all in our family. But we were all experiencing it, right, in some way. And so the way I adapted to dealing with it, I'm just going to shut this thing down. I'm not going to be need anything or want anything anymore. That's my solution to this pain I'm feeling. That's going to ensure my existence. That's going to keep me whole. Because if I embrace it, I'm just going to be devastated. I'm going to fall apart. I don't think I can handle it. So, you know, he passes away. They have um, a funeral for him. I'm at the wake. And instead of being in there with the canter and, and going through the ceremony, I'm sitting out in the lobby reading a damn Spider-Man comic book. Now, did I dissociate or what? My God, my dissociation was complete. I did not want to feel anything that was going on. Now, I look back and I go, my God, here's this 11-year-old sitting out in the lobby reading a Spider-Man comic. Does that look strange to anybody? <laughs> I'm wondering, how come someone didn't come up to me and say, you know what, this must be terrible for you or else you wouldn't have to be sitting out here reading this comic book. No one. No one asked that question. No one asked me what I was experiencing and no one was talking about it. The only time I heard anybody dealing with this is in their cries of anguish that this isn't what was supposed to happen in life. My grandfather said, you are not supposed to bury your son. Your son is supposed to bury you, right? Every time I saw him. He would be sitting there and he'd be wailing about this. You're not supposed, I wasn't supposed, this wasn't supposed to happen. I'm not, you're not supposed to bury your son. Your son is supposed to bury you. My mom, this wasn't in her plan. He shouldn't have died. I, I shouldn't be here left alone. My mom was semi-literate. She had an eighth grade education. She didn't know how to deal with all the things that she had to deal with now that she had to step up to. She depended, she was very emotionally dependent on my dad for so many things. She never had a driver's license her whole life. So that's the atmosphere that's going on for me. Everybody's talking about what shouldn't have happened and the pain they're in. I didn't speak up and say, hey, how about me? What do you think this means to me? This is terrible. I could not find those words. They weren't available to me. But what became available to me was somebody came up to me in, in this, that following summer. So now in 1964, I'm 12 years old. I'm hanging out at Bobine School, the elementary school just down the block. And one of the guys from the front of the school where the cool guys hung out, right? The real cool guys were at the park. The guys that were want to be cool were in the back of the school. But this cool guy came up to me and he had an old style beer just taken out of a, an, an ice cooler. And he handed it to me and said, why don't you have a drink? And I took that beer and I drank it. Now, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but the minute I took that drink, an alcoholic was born because it worked. It gave me a sense of freedom from all of the shit that was going on inside me that I had no idea on how to deal with. No concept, whatever, on how to handle these feelings that were going on for me. Um, and, you know, like any, you know, I, I, I heard at this uh, uh, NA conference in Hawaii once this guy from London was up speaking and he goes, you know, the truth of it is, I'm just addicted to more. <laughs> I go, God, I can relate to that. If one was good, more was going to be better, right? I'm addicted to more. And that's what it was now. That one drink, you know, I couldn't wait to get my hands on another drink. 
And I became a teenage alcoholic. At 12 years old, I was having blackouts at least once or twice a week. Drinking occupied my, occupied my whole life. I just lived to drink and drank to live. You know, school got in the way with this. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old. In fact, they were going to throw me out. They gave me the option. And I look back and it's still this thing. I'm on my own because I'm sitting there with the principal. My mom's not there. And the principal says, well, what do you want to do? You know, we're going to throw you out or you can drop out. It says, oh, it's not dropping out. Sounds better. It's like resigning from a job that's going to fire you, right? <laughs> they give you the option to resign first. I resigned from high school at 16. Blackout drinking, drinking every day, stealing money from my mother. I'm working. I'm making $1.70 selling women's shoes at mailing shoe stores. I'm drinking, you know, more and spending more money on alcohol than I'm making every week. That's what kind of a problem I had. And I knew my life wasn't going anywhere. Things weren't working out. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like who I was becoming. I decided I need to make a change. I need to find a solution. So I decided I'm going to volunteer for the armed forces. This is 1969. You know what was going on in 69 at that point in time. We were right in the midst of all of the stuff that was happening in Vietnam. And so when I showed up to the Marine Corps recruiter's office and said, I'd like to join, he says, we'd love to have you. He says, but, you know, you're 17, so that's a little bit of a problem. Your mom's going to have to sign these papers because we can't take you overseas and kill you without your mother's permission. So I brought the papers home and, you know, of course, my mom's going to sign the papers. She didn't know what the hell to do with me. You know, I was a handful at that time. So off to San Diego. Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, I go, and that was my first uh, detoxification experience. I didn't know if when I was shaking at boot camp that it was because of the alcohol or the drill instructors yelling at me. <laughs> it was probably both as I look back now at it. Um, finished, uh, became a Marine. I got my Eagle Globe and Anchor. Um, and um, then I volunteered for Vietnam when I was 18 years old and I was shipped over to Da Nang and just on a little fire base outside of the Da Nang City Hill 55. And now I was introduced to drugs other than alcohol and I had the same effect. My God, when I was high or when I was using, that's the only time I felt okay. The rest of the time, I didn't know how to deal with who I was and what was going on with me. So the only solution I had was to escape from myself. And that's what drugs and, and including alcohol did for me. And, um, you know, I was, even though I was drinking and using, I was fairly bright. I kept getting promoted. I was a section chief. I was in an artillery unit. You know, I had all kinds of experiences over there. Um, I'm lucky in many, many ways that I survived that experience, but I did. And I came back and now I'm a full-blown addict. In addition to the alcoholism, now I'm a full-blown addict. And my last duty station was going to be the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station on the island of Oahu. So I'm home for 30 days, partying my ass off, Hendrix, the doors. I mean, we're, we just had a gas. I mean, dropping acid. During the day, and as we're coming down, you know, because a lot of the acid was cut with speed, and then we're drinking on top of it, and then crash for a couple hours, and we get up and start the party all over again. That was for 30 days. I was pretty burnt out by the time I was at the airport. And as I was leaving, and my friends took me to Chicago O'Hara Airport, they gave me a lot of drugs to keep the party going in Hawaii. So when I got to Los Angeles, and I went to change planes and I looked, I discovered that they were searching everybody before they got on the plane. So in 1971, there was all those international hijackings taking place and security wasn't where it is now, right at the front of the airport. It was just before you got on the plane, they set up a metal detector. Now, I didn't know they were looking for weapons, that they weren't looking for drugs, but in my burned out state, Right. I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to get busted. So I left the line that I was standing in. I must have looked very suspicious. And I 
instead of, you know, if I wasn't so burned out, I would have just gone in the bathroom and flushed the drugs down the toilet, right? That would have been the thing to do. And thank God I didn't think of that because what I'm about to tell you wouldn't have happened. Just like if Roland Hazard didn't go to Zurich, Switzerland, there might not be Alcoholics Anonymous today. So instead of going in the bathroom, I start to go around to the sand ashtrays because at that point you could smoke everywhere, right? They're smoking in the airplane, in the you know terminal and stuff. And had all these ashtrays filled with sand. So I would mosey up to one of them. I'd move some of the sand aside, reach in my pocket, grab some, a handful of some of the drugs, put them in the sand and bury them and move on to the next one. Well, they saw me. The two LAX police officers saw me doing this. So they're just following me, digging up the drugs as I'm going around because it was a terminal in the round, right? With all these gates out to these different air airplane. So I go around and then I get in line thinking, okay, don't have anything. I'm clean. Get in line, go through the line. And there's two police officers standing there. Hey, Marine, come over here. You're going to, we're going to talk to you for a minute. They take me in the back room and lay all the drugs out on the table. You know, it's, it's this thing that, that, you know, we're, I was so out of touch with reality. I was thinking, oh, my God, I was going to have a lot of fun in Hawaii, man. My friends were really generous. There were a lot of good party drugs on the table. And, um, and I started talking to these guys and say, you know, you know what, what we do in a case like this is that we arrest you here. But after sharing with you and finding out where you served over in Vietnam, the one police officer says, I was an MP on the same base that you were on the same time you were there. So instead of arresting you, I'm going to just report you to your commanding officer. Well, I didn't know if that was, he was doing me a favor or not, because that meant I'd be going in Marine Corps brig. You see the Marine Corps at that point had a zero tolerance for drug problems. In fact, the commandant said, in an announcement he made, Marines don't have drug problems. I don't know where he got that idea from, but some Marines don't have drug problems. So I half expected that when I landed in uh, on Oahu, there would be MPs waiting for me to take me off to the brig, but there were none. So I got to the to my unit that night, and I, as I always did, whenever I got in trouble, I started to try to come up with a scheme to to reduce the problem that I was about to encounter. Right to I call it my, my approach to harm reduction. I was always trying to figure out an angle to minimize the consequences of the trouble I had caused. So the plan I came up with is I'd go see the first sergeant the next day. They call him Top in the Marine Corps. And I tell Top, hey, I got a problem and uh, I need help. And I knew at that point they had a zero tolerance. And it would just mean that I would be getting a general discharge or a medical discharge and I'd be out of the Marine Corps. And I could get back to Chicago and get the party going again. So the next morning I go in, it's because it's time to meet the first sergeant, introduce myself to him. And I tell him I got a problem and kind of looks up at me and then looks down at his desk, starts to shuffle some papers around. He goes, Berger, you are one lucky Marine. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about? I just told him I got a drug problem. And now he's telling me I'm a lucky Marine. Like, what is this guy smoking, right? I mean, what's going on with him? And um, he says, three days ago, the commandant signed an order that instead of throwing you guys out of the core, we're going to rehabilitate you. So you're going over to the Drug Information Center to get some help. He goes, the program started three days ago. And from what I can just tell from the phone call I made, you're the third Marine that's getting admitted into this program. Really? <laughs> that was not part of the plan. What's going on here? You know, he's improvising. That was not what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to be getting discharged and getting, I was done with the Marine Corps, right? I'm ready to go back home and party. Um. At that point, I had a pretty strong idea about how wrong that war was and stuff like that. And I was finished with this whole thing. So I end up signing up for this program. And, you know, once again, it's this, this you know, 
Is it the synchronization that Young talks about? I think it might be because uh, I'm in this program. They don't know really what they're doing. It's a brand new program. They put a captain in charge because he had a BA in psychology. Well, I had a BA in psychology. I realized how much I didn't know once I had my BA in psychology. So they didn't really know what they were going to do with us, but they knew they didn't know. And so they turned to the AA community that just happened to have a group of young people that were living this way of life. This group of young people had been brought into the program, had been fostered into the program by a woman by the name of Flaubert. And she was a very, very special woman. She was, she had complete faith in God. She got up every day, meditated, prayed, and she said God would tell her where to go, and she'd go, and she'd find some addict on the beach, and, and one day she did find one on the beach. His name was Tom. He went over there because he had been told that there was this woman over there that was spiritual, and he thought, you know, it might be good to go see what, what she's about, and she found him on the beach one day and started bringing him in his program, and it's changed his life completely. So he was invited to come to speak to us on a Tuesday night. I'll still never forget it. It was in, in uh, the August, right in the beginning of August in 1971. And he comes in this room. There's about 30 Marines, all of us combat veterans, Vietnam combat veterans. And here comes this hippie. He's got a ponytail. He's got wire rim glasses on. He's got his Birkenstocks on. You know, his standard issue khaki pants in Hawaii with uh, a Hawaiian print shirt on and stuff like that. And he walks in and, you know, we're all looking at each other. What the hell is this hippie going to talk to us? We just came back from fighting this war, right? Kind of. Well, it was the right thing for them to do is to invite him in because he came in not to not to try to tell us how wrong it was to use and to drink and to do the things we were doing to ourselves. He came in to share what it meant to be in recovery. Now, that was totally unexpected on my part. I didn't know what was going to happen that night. And what I found myself experiencing when Tom was sharing was that um, he was able to talk about things was able to be vulnerable and share things with us that I would dare not let anybody know. I didn't want to talk to anybody about my fear, my insecurities, my feelings of inadequacy, my depression, my grief. And here was a man that could talk about himself completely authentically. His authenticity was mind-blowing to me. And today, what I realize is he had a freedom from that bondage of self. That's what he had. I didn't realize it at that time. But what I was witnessing was what emotional sobriety looked like. That's what emotional sobriety is, is being free. And he had that freedom. And there was something that went off inside of me, and I couldn't have used these words that I'm going to use with you right now to articulate the experience. But there was a part of me that knew if I could achieve that in my life, I would never have to drink or use again. If I could feel that way about myself, it would give me what I had always been seeking, as Jung said when he talked about Roland Hazard. He, on a low level, he, he was hazards drinking was a way of, of realizing, how did he say it? Just our longing for, for wholeness. And I think of that wholeness as freedom. That's what was going on at that particular moment. Something woke up in me at that point in time. I've often described recovery as the discovery of new possibilities. And at that moment, a whole new vista started to open up for me. I was starting to have what Jung called that vital spiritual awakening, that vital spiritual experience. 
I was seeing that there was another possibility, another way of being in this world that would not be dependent on alcohol and other drugs to be okay. Well, just like what happened when I took that first drink, I was saying an alcoholic was born the minute I had a first drink. The night I took that first, that I allowed or whatever happened with that experience, recovery was born. I was committed. I wanted that and I knew I wanted it and I wanted it as much and stronger and even if not stronger than I wanted that drink or that drug because this was real. I knew that there was something phony about what I had been doing in terms of getting to where I was getting to be okay. That back then we used the word plastic a lot. I was a plastic, fantastic man <laughs> is what I was. So that's the journey 50 years ago. That happened to me. Now, the amazing thing is, as I sit here sharing with you right now, I'm just moved recently to Pennsylvania. My sponsor, Tom, he's still my sponsor after 50 years, is living with us and helping us get settled in our new home. I mean, that's the kind of relationship and friendship and fellowship that's developed between us over these years. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, uh, I'll be getting off here in about 45 minutes um, because they're having a, um, a celebration of his wife just died about six months ago. And that's part of the reason I invited him out to come stay with us. And they're going to have a celebration of her life. And so I'll be joining them for that after, after I say goodbye to you guys. So, you know, I feel some sadness some, about that, but his wife, Tally was just a great woman. And just like Tom was, you know, and one of the Tom, one of the phrases that Tom learned from Flowbird, you know, was, you know, love in action or loving action. And he says, you know, his whole recovery was based on that of really getting out of yourself. But at the same time, dealing with yourself, it's that paradox, right? Is we have to lose ourselves, but we have to get it, get into ourselves and deal with some of these things that we have to deal with. So, you know, in the last 50 years, I can't tell you that my recovery has just been a straight line. I've had some incredible successes. I've had some incredible failures. You know, I've had joy beyond knowing. I've suffered pain and dealt with grief, you know, where I was laying and rolled up in a ball, you know, sobbing and crying and, you know, waking up in a pool of sweat at times that the anxiety attacks were so bad. But the one thing that I believe today to be true is that this program is about recovering our lost true self. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, to me, it means being alive. You see, today I want to be alive. Today I will, I love the fact I can cry when I need to cry. I love the fact that I can get angry if I need to get angry. I love the fact that I can step back and see what a fool I was for just, for just getting angry. But I love the fact that the program has given me a way to be in life and experience life fully without needing to run away from what I'm experiencing. Without demanding that life should be a certain way. Now, as some of you may know that some of you that are familiar with my, I, I'm a big, big emotional sobriety fan. I mean, I just think that it's Bill Wilson's fourth legacy in our program, the steps, the traditions, the general service office were all the three legacies that Bill and Dr. Bob left us. But I'm telling you, you know, his thoughts and his ideas about emotional sobriety, I think, are just incredible and are so important because it's what we have to do once we get our physical sobriety and we're not struggling now with, with that craving to drink or to use or that obsession of the mind. When we're free of that, now, now the second stage of our recovery comes into play. 
And that's learning how to live this life, learning how to have relationships, learning how to show up in relationships, learning how to deal with life on life's terms. You'll hear that phrase in meetings, but I don't think people fully understand that. Just like I don't think people fully understand the second half of that first step. You know, we, we admit it, we were powerless over our, our alcohol, or if it's NA, we admit it, we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Most people think the unmanageability was a result of our drinking and using. But I'm telling you, it's not. My unmanageability started way before I picked up a drink or used. My unmanageability started because of the ideas I had about how life was supposed to be. The ideas I had about who I was supposed to be, who you were supposed to be, how life was supposed to be. Those ideas turned out to be, as Bill Wilson stated it, an impossible way of life. Because I just kept getting pissed off and upset. My God, this isn't how things are supposed to be. Doesn't that sound familiar from what I heard my grandfather say? From what I heard my mother say? I mean, everybody around me was living with that same idea. There's a way that things are supposed to be, and your life is supposed to be this way. And if it's not that way, you got screwed, or God punished you, or whatever, whatever crazy ideas you had about it. Today, I look at all of that in a very, very different way. That's part of this spiritual awakening. Is just it, It's just... It's, it's such a shift in my consciousness. Now, I don't, there's no supposed tos. <laughs> there's no shoulds. None. No support. Every, every now and again, one might fall out of my mouth, but it's rare today because I can see that they were just illusions. Illusions that I had created because I had created these illusions because I thought that I needed to have this idea that things were going to turn out the way I wanted them to be for me to be okay. You see, I couldn't imagine an existence that didn't require life to be a certain way for me to be okay. I call it the I'm okay if mentality. I'm okay if Susie Valensky liked me in the third grade. My God, it would have made my life wonderful. And if Susie Valinsky would have kissed me at resource that one day at, at recess that one day when I was open, she was going to give me a kiss. Oh my God, I would have been so, I would have been so okay. But I kept doing that. It wasn't just with Susie Valinsky, it was everything, even with my dad passing away. If my dad didn't die, I would have been okay. I could have been a different man. If this didn't happen, if that didn't happen, it, it went on and on ad nauseum. And when things didn't go on, all I could do would be is get upset about them or, or fall into a state of self-pity and get lost in my objection and get bitter and angry about it. Or if you were in a relationship with me, I'd make you feel like shit about yourself because you didn't live up to my expectations. Because that's what I did. I tried to manipulate. I tried to manipulate everyone. Bill called it controlling the people and conditions around us. I call it, I tried to manipulate the people and conditions around me. I think Bill cleaned it up a little bit when he said control, because control is nothing more than manipulation. I tried to manipulate everything I could. There was always a self-interest, a motivation to get something for myself. I didn't see you as a person. I saw you instrumentally as what you could or couldn't do for me. And that's how I looked at life. Never thinking about maybe part of life is seeing what I could do to give to life, right? Or give to you or to just experience you as a, as a person instead of expecting things from you. So now... I start to run into all of these things and I start to suffer in recovery. My good friend, Fred, calls it sober suffering. Sober suffering. You know, there was a lot of sober suffering. And at first, when I didn't understand what I understand that I'm talking to you about today, I thought it meant something was wrong with my program. 
God, if you had a good program, you wouldn't suffer anymore. See, that's how black and white my thinking was, how infantile my thinking was. I, I love the way that, that Harry Tebow described what he observed in the alcoholics he was working with. He says that there's, he says it's remarkable that there's these infantile aspects of, of the child's ego that seem to persist into adulthood. <laughs> infantile aspects of the child's ego that seems to persist in it all. In other words, he called us big babies. Well, of course we were. I wanted everything my way. And when it didn't go my way, I threw a fit. I've got a three-year-old. That's how I act. Just like she did. And then he want to do things in a hurry, right? That's the other thing that he pointed out. Those three things. Want everything our way. We get pissed off when it doesn't happen our way. And then we want to do it real quick. So this sober suffering, I thought, meant that something was wrong with my program. Today, I realize that any time I have trouble, it's not an indication that something wrong. What it is, it's an indication that I need to grow up. It's an indication for me that I need to pay attention to what this is about and unpack it so that I can understand what the next step in my development is. So trouble doesn't mean something's wrong. Trouble just puts a spotlight on what's next. That's all it does. It helps me see what's next for me. Well, I don't know about you, but I never wanted things to be next. I wanted to try to hold on to now all the time. Well, there's no such thing. Now is always moving to next. Now is always changing to next. And it's how well I flow to that next that's going to determine my health in life and to follow wherever that next takes me. So that's what emotional sobriety did. It started to get me to look at all of these things from such a different point of view. Now, instead of demanding that life is supposed to conform to my expectations, I see that it's my job to deal with life as it presents itself to me. That's the task of my life, is to find the best response to whatever challenges life is bringing into, into my life. And, you know, we get many of them, you know, many of them in life. I remember, um, so I have four children. I have a 36-year-old and a 34-year-old, and I have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old. And so when Maddie, the eight-year-old, was about three, we were going out to a Pasadena uh, Playhouse, and, and we would have a gas at Christmas time. They would do these shows, these like the Beauty and Beast um, and Christmas, um, Cinderella and Christmas and stuff. And so they would modify these stories and always put this Christmas theme around them, and they were you know, audience participation theater. So when the hero came out, you would cheer. And then when the villain come out, everybody would boo and the kids would be standing in the aisles and they encouraged all of this freedom. And so they were so much fun. So, you know, you know, I thought, my God, we're having so much fun. I want to take her one day so she could see the splendor of the Pantages Theater, which is this great theater in Hollywood. So it was a bit of a stretch, I realized, to take someone who's uh, almost four, but not four yet, to, um, oh, God, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, oh, it'll come to me in a minute. It's that next step from, um, oh, what the hell was the name of that play? Anyway, I get these tickets for the play. It'll come to me as I sit here and tell you about it. So we're so excited. We're going to go see this, right? It's so cool. We get, it's a day after Christmas, the 26th again. Um, we show up to the Pantages Theater. I bought these three tickets on StubHub. They were like 750 bucks each. So it's, I got $2,100 worth of tickets in my hand. They're great seats. And walk up and hand the gal the tickets. We got 10 minutes before the show. And she looks at me and she says, there's a problem here. I go, oh, did I get the date wrong or what happened? On the she goes, no. She goes, um, the problem is, is that every troop that comes in here to, does, to do a show, 
sets an age limit for children coming into the theater. And this troupe has sent five years old as the age limit. And I see the daughter, your daughter that you're holding right now. Uh, tell me how old she is. You know, so it's an honest program, right? I go, well, she's going to be four here in about a month. She goes, yeah, I thought she was under five. She, I'm, I can't let you in. She's not old enough to see this show. There's that moment of that oh shit moment, right? If you had those oh shit moments in your life, oh shit. What the hell do I do now? Now, because I had a little emotional sobriety, I didn't start to beat myself up. I didn't get angry at her. She's just telling me what the rules are. She says, God, you know, I didn't see that on the site. She says, yeah, it's, it's, you have to really look for it to get it out. I go, yeah, miss that. So I said, okay, so um, can I take the tickets over here and get a refund? You know, at least I'll get my 2100 bucks back. She goes, well, there's more bad news for you. I said, that was my second oh shit, right? What's the more bad news? Well, you got those tickets from StubHub, didn't you? And I go, yeah. She goes, that's a third-party vendor. She goes, we don't refund third-party vendor tickets. I go, oh, wow, that is more bad news. So I'm looking at my wife, and, um, and I'm looking at, at my daughter, Madeline, and I'm just shaking my head, and I go, well, why don't I just saw a Starbucks. Why don't we just go across the street? For a minute, I thought maybe I'll stand out there and try to scalp the tickets, but they had a big security guard standing out there and I didn't want to go do that. So I said, let's go get a cup of coffee across the way. You know, let's go pause for a minute, decide what we're going to do to deal with this situation. So we go over there and, you know, I'm terribly disappointed. My wife is disappointed. I'm appreciating. She's not telling me what an idiot I am. You know, and I'm trying not to tell myself that I'm a big idiot. And I look over at the condiments, somebody's, this couple and this, this teenage daughter, they're fixing up their coffees and stuff. And there's three of them and I got three tickets. And I go, well, I might as well just offer to give them the tickets because I hate to see these things go to waste. So I walk over to, the, to them and I says, look, my three-year-old couldn't get in because of this. They have a they have an age limitation, but would you like these tickets? And I go back and I said, I don't expect any, you don't have to pay me, just please use them. I just hate for them to go to waste. So I go back in line and they start talking amongst themselves and then they come over and they stand next to my wife and I, and they go, do you mind if we share with you what this means to us? I said, no, no, please do. I mean, the guy's got tears coming down his eyes. His daughter's crying. His girlfriend's welling up. He goes, he goes, I don't know if there's such a thing as miracles, but this feels like a miracle to me. He goes, I am a, one of those um, oil drill uh, workers that goes out on these oil rigs for six months at a time. And my wife and I are divorced. And my daughter asked me before I go off, because I'm flying out to Texas in two days, could you take me to the Pantages Theater to see this play? I've been dying to see it. And I couldn't get tickets. It was sold out. But they said, if I come early, I might be able to get in the line for last minute cancellations. But there were none today. And he goes, so you giving me these tickets and my daughter, these tickets was the very thing that we hoped for when we came down here today. So I can't thank you enough for this. I'm going, what? <laughs> now my wife and I are crying, right? His daughter saying, thank you so much. This is going to make, you know, I'm going to miss my dad a lot, but this makes it so much more meaningful our saying goodbye here for this period of time and all that stuff. So we look at each other and say, that was the best $2,000 we spent for Christmas this year, that it turned into this thing. Now, I would have never discovered that if I would have been wrapped up in my self-pity about what an idiot I was, right? I would have just jumped in my car, pissed off, driven back to Westlake, angry and said, fuck them, you know, the fucking nation put those things you know, on the front of the web, I would have been blaming. That would have been the mentality. Whose fault it is? And then when I stopped blaming the Pantages Theater, I would have started blaming myself. 
Or I would have probably turned it on my wife. Why didn't you fucking check the website? You know, so it had to be somebody's fault. Didn't it? No, it doesn't. Doesn't need to be anybody's fault. Reality is what reality is. And when I fight reality, I lose. When I fight reality, I lose. So that's an example of what I'm talking about is that is that instead of looking at life to be a certain way for me to be okay, the shift that's taken place is now I take the responsibility to claim the experience I'm having rather than to be claimed by the experience I'm having. That I now take the responsibility to meet that situation in the best way possible and try to cope with it in the best way. And if I don't know how, then I reach out. I reach out to Joe or I reach out to my sponsor, Tom, or I reach out to someone and say, God, you got any idea what the fuck to do with this? <laughs> I had a situation with Joe I reached out to recently and said, hey, well, Joe, what the hell do I do with this? And he encouraged me to go down a certain path. So now I take that responsibility to find the best way to respond to life. No longer demanding that it has to be what I want it to be all the time for me to be okay. I still enjoy it when it does turn out the way I'd like it to at times. That's fine. But I'm not expecting it as much. Rarely nowadays. Bill talks about having a bright place in sunshine that you start to... Once I call it getting aligned with life, once I've become aligned with reality, there's not so much conflict anymore. I'm not fighting things as much as I was fighting things before. So it's been quite a journey in these 50 years, and I've been so blessed to be able to to go back to school and become a clinical psychologist and help people and share some of the insights I have and write some books that seem to be making a difference to people's lives. I hear from people all the time. My God, thanks for introducing me to the Bill Wilson I've been looking for. <laughs> I mean, you know, and this is, this is the next journey. See, I, I do think one of the reasons, and then I'll stop this and we'll, I, I don't know if you guys open this up to share or what, um, but, you know, I think one of the reasons that emotional sobriety did not spearhead the next movement, as Bill hoped it would in 1958 when this was published in The Grapevine, is that AA, I think, because of its emphasis on turning things over to God, adopted the spiritual bypass to cope with things. And so if we just put it in the God box, somehow it would be taken care of. And, you know, as John Weldon said about spiritual bypass, it's a way of avoiding dealing with all of these messy things in life that we don't know how to deal with. And I think we're finally realizing that there's no way around dealing with these things, that we have to deal with them. One of the things my sponsor and, and I talk about all the time is that we've both gone and done a lot of work with ourselves. Yes, the program has meant the world to both of us, but so has therapy. So has going in and doing some intensive work on ourselves. I've been to several intensives for myself. He been he went to a program called Core Kills. You know, I've used different programs myself in terms of dealing with things. And it was the combination of that and what I was learning in the program that helped me develop, you know, the stance, the that I take in my life today, the philosophy that I use my life. Um, I don't get into this whole thing about is there a God or not a God? I don't know about any of that stuff, but I do know there's that force that Young was talking about. What did he call it again? I just love how it, he phrased it. He says, the thirst of our being for wholeness, the thirst of our being for wholeness, and that's what I see emotional sobriety doing, is helping me become what I can be. That's what this journey is about. And that's my higher power. If you were to ask me, what is it? Well, it's tapping into that. It's paying attention to that in my life. It's listening to that, listening to what that's calling me to do. 
So I hope uh, my share has helped kind of brought some of these concepts and ideas into your mind and into your heart, because it's, it is that, right? This is the language of the heart that Bill talked about. It's really, I think, where we live. And that's what I experienced with this emotional sobriety. You know, it's not a lot of that psychobabble stuff, man. It's about learning how to cope with life as it is while paying attention to what you're doing now and becoming aware. And that's the last thing I would say is that I really believe that this emotional sobriety is dependent on our commitment to our self-awareness and to being able to increase our awareness. I never wanted to be aware <laughs> of things before because I didn't want to see what, what, what I was looking at. I just didn't want to see it. Well, I, I, my self-hate is lessened enough now where today I have more self-compassion than I've ever had. And I can start to see some of these things that, that I need to look at that help me grow myself along these lines. So I think with that, I'll stop and then turn the meeting back over to you, Virgil.